Colossians chapter 2. Let's pray as we move into this time in God's Word together. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for your Word. Lord, thank you that we can, we can run to your truth. God, I praise you that for that amazing prayer that you played, prayed in the, before you went to the cross. Sanctify them by your truth and your word is truth. And God, we pray the same thing. Sanctify us, Lord, by your truth. Open our eyes to it, God, that we might see wondrous things in your law. Lord, set our hearts ablaze about what we see there about Christ Jesus and His salvation. God, help us to see. We need your help in this time. God, please empower me, Lord, by your, by your Holy Spirit to speak in the ability that you supply. And I pray, God, that you empower every hearer of your word. To hear with hearts to want to know you. Please help us, God, in this time. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 9 through 15 in just a moment. Before we do that, I just want to give you a summary statement for what this passage is all about. This passage puts before us today the person of Jesus... And the work of Jesus. So if you have a study guide there, you can fill that in on those two blanks at the very top. This passage today, because I want this to be highlighted in your mind. This passage today puts before us the person of Jesus, who He is, who Jesus is, and the work of Jesus. That's what Jesus has accomplished. What He has completed for us. And the scripture that we're going to read in just a moment is going to put that before us. So... We're going to read verse 9, and in verse 9, we're going to see the person of Jesus, who He is. And then we're going to read verses 10 through 15, and we're going to see the work of Christ, the work of Jesus. And you'll notice when we get in there, and I want you to have this in the back of your mind. You're going to notice this past tense language, that these things have already been done. This is who Christ is, and this is what He has already done, past tense. He's accomplished it for every person here that's in Christ Jesus. So we're about to read these things together. Hear the person of Christ and the work that He has already accomplished. Verse 9. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Can't be much more clear than that. that Christ is God in the flesh. And you have been filled in Him, or you're complete in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. It's a beautiful scripture, right? We're, our main focus today is going to be verses 11 through 15 because as you know, last week Dustin dipped in to verses 9 and 10. So our main focus is verse, verses 11 through 15. And in verses 11 through 15, you have this beautiful a conglomeration of this, the blessings, these spiritual blessings poured out on those who are in Christ Jesus. It's just, they're just all mixed in there in verses 11 through 15. What you have in Christ 
if you were a believer here today. And so you've got things like this. You have our union with Christ is spoken about here. Our spiritual circumcision, circumcision is spoken about here. The fact that we are buried with Christ and risen with Christ is spoken about here. The fact that we were dead, but we're made alive is spoken about in this passage of Scripture. The, the fact that we are forgiven of all of our trespasses, nailed to the cross. And also we see here that our spiritual enemies are defeated. That they have been disarmed and even shamed. And so this is some weighty, weighty truth here, okay? So here's what I want you to know. I... I do not stand before you today as an information dump. I don't, I don't have just a, a couple little neat things to know about Jesus. Okay? I want to stand before you today as one, as one who's been in the presence of God. Who has gotten a message from His Word to give to His people today. That we might be drawn into His presence. That we might love and adore Jesus Christ. And so if you think that way, if you believe me that that's true, that's the way I stand before you today, then it changes the way you listen. It changes the way you hear God's Word. You don't hear God's Word with a casual attitude. You hear it with trembling. You draw in, you incline your ear to hear the things spoken by God. And with that in mind, I want to pray for us one more time. That God would draw us in to hear His Word like that this morning, okay? Let me pray for us one more time. Let's pray. God, help us to take heed to that. God, protect us and forgive us from the sin of casually listening to Your Word. Forgive us, God, of the sin of leaning back listening to Your Word, God. But teach us to lean in and to incline our ear to hear words from a King. Words from our Lord. Your scriptures breathed out by you, God. Lord, speak to us today by your spirit. Do that work, God, as your word is read and spoken about, God, that you do a work in individual hearts all over this room, God. Help us, please. Help us to see you this morning. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a little bit about the context. So you've got this passage of scripture, verse 9 through 15. This is conglomeration of who Christ is and what He's accomplished for us. And I want you to think about the context for a minute. Think about the context. I want you to remember the warning that's before this passage and after this passage. The warning in verse 8 and the warning in verse 16. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, this is a warning here. And from that warning, he moves into, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Listen, this is sitting in the context of a warning to us not to be moved away by Satan and all his schemes. And not only before that, but look at after that, verse 16. We have this description of what Christ has done in verse 16. He says, Therefore, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. And we'll stop there. Do you understand this context that this passage of Scripture is sitting right in the midst of two warnings. As if Paul is saying, I'm warning you, don't move away from this Christ. Deceivers want you to move away. But I'm warning you, don't move away from Christ. And to keep you from doing that, I want to remind you of who He is and what He has accomplished so that you would never move away. And that's what this passage is all about. He wants us, Paul... He wants the Colossian church to be so obsessed with Jesus and so, so mesmerized by the work that He has accomplished and so rooted and grounded in Christ that when deceivers come, they want nothing to do with it. They want absolutely nothing to do with it. So the purpose of this passage is something like this. Look at Christ. Look at Him. Okay, Colossian church or Grace Community Church. Look at Christ. Look at what He's accomplished and let nothing move you from Him. Not deceptions, not temptations, not distractions. Let nothing move you from Him. I mean, can you see Him? 
Oh, that you would just see Him. And when you see Him, you never want to move away. And the deceiver says something like this. Yeah, you know, Christ is good and all. This is all over Colossians, right? The deceiver says, Christ is good and all, but you need something more. And Paul says in verse 9, Christ Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You need nothing else. The tempter says something like this. You know, you, you really, you need something. You need something more than Christ. And Paul says, you are complete in Him, verse 10. You need nothing. The, dis, the, the distractor in our lives, he says something like this. You know, look at this little shiny thing over here. And, and look at this little, shine, go after this little shiny thing over here. And Paul says, cast your gaze upon Christ. And everything else on this earth will grow strangely dim. And so it's as if Paul wants the Colossian church to look down at their feet. And in Colossian church, I want you to look down at your feet for a moment. And I want you to see the rock that you are standing on. So as you see this rock that you're standing on, you will be less likely to step off of the rock into the sinking sand all around you. Look at Christ. Look at what He has accomplished. And when a child of God does, when a, when a child of God does that, when they, when they really get it, when, when the truths... Of verse 9 through 15 and who Christ is and what He's done. When it really when it grips their souls. They think something like, why would I ever go anywhere else? Why would I ever chase after anything else? Why would I believe any of these deceivers that are trying to lead me anywhere else? So for salvation, for sanctification, for satisfaction, for joy. Why would I go anywhere else? Don't you see Christ and what He's done? And that's what this, per, the, this passage is all about. So in verse 11 through 15, we're going to dig in right here. I want you to see what Christ has done, what He's finished, what He's accomplished, past tense for you if you're in Christ, so that you'll never budge from Him. First thing that we see here, number one, is we see something that Christ has done. And it's called union with Christ. That His people become united with Him. Union with with Christ. And we see that in these phrases. So verse 11 through 15. That passage of scripture. It begins. Verse, verse 11. And at the very end of verse 15. It begins and ends with this phrase. In Him. In Him. United to Him. You are in Him. In Him. And in between. In verses 11 through 15. We see phrases like this. You're buried, you were buried with Him. You were raised with Him. God made us alive together with Him. United to Christ is what we're talking about here. So I want you to think about this spiritual blessing for just a moment. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you are a believer in Christ, you are united to Christ like the branch is connected to the vine. In John chapter 15, like the branch is connected to the vine. We are the branches and we are connected to Christ our vine. All our nourishment comes from Him. All that we need comes from Him. We're a branch connected to the vine. We have no need to go anywhere else for our sanctification or joy or anything else for that matter. United to Christ. Think about it like this. United to Christ like a, a man is united to his wife in marriage. You're united like a man is united to his wife in marriage. Marriage. I want you to imagine the poorest of women, the beggar on the streets, the poorest of women, united in marriage to the richest of kings. United in marriage to the richest of kings. And all she says is two words. She says, she says, I do. And suddenly a beggar becomes a possessor of a kingdom. All you have is mine. All I have is yours. United to Christ. Now Paul knows that the enemy, Satan and his armies, desires to entice the Colossian church away from Christ. And so he pleads with them with a burning heart. Don't do it. Listen, Colossian church, don't take the bait. You're united to the fullness of deity. 
Don't take the bait to move away from Him. You're complete in Him. You possess the riches of a King. Why would you ever move away? You're united to Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 2. I want to read this verse to you. You don't have to flip there. In Jeremiah chapter 2. I want you to see in this verse. The stupidity. The foolishness. Of someone that would have Christ. And be united to Him. And yet move away. Look at. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 12. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So He's calling the heavens the creation of God. I want you to be amazed about this. Jeremiah says, Heavens, look at this. This is crazy. This is nuts. This is foolish. Look at this. But what's He going to point them to? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You want to talk about something foolish. You're thirsty and you have this fountain of living water springing up from the ground. All you could ever need to quench your thirst. And you say, no thank you, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to dig out and, and cut out my own cistern, which by the way is broken and won't even hold water. And this is the stupidity of us being united to Christ. Branches in the vine. The poorest of women united in marriage to the richest of kings. And how foolish that we would turn away. How foolish that we would move away from Him. So, so Christian, if you're a Christian here, and you're united to Christ, listen to me. You are seated at the glorious banquet table of Jesus and, and you are being tempted to move away to eat from the garbage cans of the world. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're seated at His banquet table in Christ Jesus, united to Him. Now what would make somebody move away from the banquet table of Jesus to go after the garbage cans of the world? Why? Why would they do that? It's blindness. Blindness to see who Jesus is. Blindness to see the glory of what He has accomplished. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to do. Blind your mind. Distract you. Help make it to where you cannot see His beauty. You know facts about Him, but you don't know His beauty. He's trying to blind you to that. But the Holy Spirit is at work. Opening your eyes through Colossians 2, 11 through 15, I hope today, to see Christ and to see what He has accomplished for you. That you might glory in Him and never go after the garbage cans of the world. Do you feel dissatisfied? Do you feel dissatisfied in this life? I want to encourage you that if you're in Christ here, you are a branch hooked to the vine of ultimate satisfaction. Abide in Him. Do you lack peace? Do you lack joy? You're a branch connected to the vine that is the source of all joy. Christ who's the source of all peace. Stick with Him. Hold to Him. Hold fast to Him. Do you want to press forward? Do you want to move forward in your life into real holiness and real sanctification? You are a branch that is connected to the source of sanctification. Hold fast in Him, abide in Him, never move away from Christ. I want you to think about how silly it would be to imagine a branch hooked to the source, which is the vine of Christ. And you imagine that, that branch, oh, how He wants to bear fruit. And He hops right off the, the vine and goes and tries to bear fruit in another way somehow. You see how silly that is? How foolish that is? And so the same thing is said to us. That, that just like the deceivers were trying to lead the Colossian church away from Christ and who He is and what He's done. The same thing will happen to you. But hold to Him. You're united to the source of it all. Let's go to that second spiritual blessing that you have in Christ. Number two is spiritual circumcision. Look at verse 11. Spiritual circumcision. In Him. This is something that's done for you. Listen. In Him also, you were circumcised. With a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
Now this is obviously referring to a spiritual circumcision, right? Not a physical circumcision. Because he says it right here in verse 11. With a circumcision made without hands. It's called the circumcision of Christ. It's the one that belongs to Christ. The one that he does. It's a circumcision made without hands. Now I think this again sheds some light on what the false teachers were bringing into the Colossian church. They're bringing in something like this. Look, you really want to be spiritual? You really want to be a true Christian? You need to follow this rule right here and be circumcised. We see that in Acts 15. We see that in Galatians where the Jews are trying to make the Gentiles become Jews to truly be Christians. Now, we don't necessarily deal with that issue here, right? Nobody's ever been pushed in that kind of false direction specifically. But here's what I think you need to know. The deceiver is an expert in getting us to focus on these external things like physical circumcision that are to point to internal, more important things like spiritual circumcision. So, so he, he is an expert in getting us focused on these external things of signs and symbols that we might move our attention away from and neglect the most important internal things. He is an expert at that. You need to know that. Just to give you some examples, circumcision is an obvious example. Also, we see in the Old Testament, we see the Ark of the Covenant, which is meant to be this symbol of the presence and the power of God. And yet at some point in history, the people of Israel say, hey, we're going out to war. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant and it will save us. They took that external thing and they leaned into that rather than what it was to point them to the presence of the, of the Almighty God. Or what about that, that bronze serpent that was lifted up before the people of Israel? I want you to make a bronze serpent. And when somebody's bitten by that snake, when they see the serpent, they will live and not die. As a picture to point us to Christ, who was lifted up on the cross, that whoever looks to Him would live and not die. That's the picture. And yet the people of Israel named that thing and bowed down to it and worshipped it. Satan's an expert of moving us in the direction of looking to the external things. Baptism. Same thing, something so important like baptism, this initial obedience in a believer's life, when they obey God in this picture of them being buried with Christ in His death, raised to walk in newness of life, and yet people cling to that baptism and say, that baptism is what saves me. Foolish. A foolish thought. So here's the warning I think that flows out of this, this warning about circumcision. Here's the warning that we need to hear. Satan is totally fine with something. He is completely okay with you possessing all the external things that mark a Christian. Going to church, all your external morality, all your ritual, rituals. He's totally fine with you possessing all of those things as long as you miss the most important eternal, internal realities. And therefore go to hell or waste your life. He's okay with that. He's an expert of getting your attention on those things. And so what we see here is he looks, Paul looks at these people that are being tempted away with this, you must be circumcised language that we hear in Acts 15 and Galatians also. And he looks at them and he says, you have been circumcised with a circumcision that's made without hands. It's that circumcision of Christ. You already have it. You already have it. So he's not speaking about a physical circumcision here, but I do think it'd be helpful for us to understand some things about the Old Testament physical circumcision. Turn with me to Genesis 17. I want you to understand some things about not just the spiritual circumcision, but the physical circumcision that points us to the spiritual reality. In Genesis 17, here's what we're going to see is that circumcision was a sign of the covenant to Abraham. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant to Abraham. Genesis 17, I'm going to start in verse 1. And about verse 9 is where we start seeing him talk about circumcision. Verse 1 though. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, listen to the promises, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now we know what that's speaking about, right? We read about that earlier in Genesis 12, when you're coming through the Bible. 
That God promised to Abraham that through him was going to come the Messiah Christ. Through your seed, Abraham, is coming the Christ. It's going to bless all nations. And he says right here, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. The Christ is coming to you, Abraham. He's going to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. What you think about this? He says two main things right there that we see. Two main things. One, Abraham. Here's the covenant, Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations because the Christ is coming through your lineage. He's going to bless all nations. And number two, that's the more long-term view. And then number two, the more immediate view is I'm going to give your people this land. I'm going to give them what is often called the promised land because of this promise. I'm going to give you the promised land. So you're going to be the father of all nations and I'm going to give you... The promised land. Look at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every, here it is, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be, listen, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. A sign of the covenant between me and you. A sign of that covenant that I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the land, the promised land. This is the reason when you get into Joshua 5 and they cross. I mean, think about this. The people of Israel just crossed the river Jordan because God stopped the river and allowed them to pass. And they get on the other side. And for the first time, they're in the land of Canaan. They're in the promised land. And they're about to take over that first city, Jericho, that's in their way. But just before they do that, what does God say do? Stop. Break out the flint knives and circumcise everybody, all the men here. And God reminds them in doing that. You are taking this promise land because of my promise. It's my promise. It's my covenant with you that gives you this promise land. And circumcision is a sign of that covenant. You will be a people called the circumcision as a sign that I'm giving you this land. And then in the more long term view that Abraham will be the father of many nations. It happened, right? Or it is happening, right? Jesus came. The Messiah came through Abraham's people, the Israelites. He came through the circumcision and he died to redeem a people to himself. And right now he is redeeming to himself an all nations bride. And this is what the circumcision was to be a picture of. So I want you to keep that in your mind. And then I want you to think about this. What Paul's talking about is not that physical circumcision, but the spiritual one. And that spiritual circumcision was spoken about all over the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament thing. God enacted circumcision as this sign of the covenant. But he spoke often in his word about the spiritual circumcision. That Paul says, Colossians, you have it. You've got it. You say, where does he talk about that? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Or at least listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, 16, listen to this. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision there. You see, you can have the physical circumcision... And yet still have a stubborn heart that doesn't see Him as the God of gods and Lord of lords. But when you have the circumcision of the heart, you see Him. And you no longer walk in rebellion because you look to Him as God of God, Lord of lords, the Almighty One. It's a spiritual circumcision. Chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. That you may live. So you can have that physical circumcision and yet not seek God in your heart, not be changed, and you not love God with anything in you, but you have the spiritual circumcision, then your heart is dealt with and you love the living God. You love Him. And you want to obey Him. Jeremiah, let me give you one more. There's many of these. I just want to give you one more. Jeremiah chapter 9. Spiritual circumcision. Listen. Chapter 9, verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Punishment is coming to all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Because he's about to speak to them about a spiritual circumcision. Listen. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. We're talking about a spiritual circumcision. Not just a cutting away of the flesh of the body. But a cutting away of the heart. A heart being dealt with, a heart that's changed. So Paul says, Colossian church, that's the circumcision that you have. These people might be moving you toward the physical one, but you have that circumcision of the heart that moves you to obey God and love God and walk with God. That's the one that you have, Colossian church. Paul's telling them in that, imagine why he'd be telling them that. Don't let these people move you and yank, yank you back to the shadows of Christ when you have Christ Himself. Don't let them do that to you. Is what He's saying to you. One question that may come up is why, why physical circumcision? Why does God use physical circumcision as this picture of what God does in every believer's heart? Why would He use that? And I'm sure that goes deeper than... And I'll have an answer for it, but I want to give you a, a good quote from John MacArthur on this that I thought, I thought was a good insight. It's thought-provoking. He says, The cutting of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin inasmuch as the part of man that produces life. And all that he produces as sin is sinful and must be cut off. Paul tells them spiritual circumcision of the heart. Colossian church, that real one, has already happened to you. Look at the phrase in verse 11. By putting off the body of the flesh. You see it there? You have the circumcision of Christ. How? By putting off the body of of the flesh. You see, in physical circumcision, physical circumcision, a, 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 a flesh is cut away. But in spiritual circumcision, we have not just a piece of the flesh torn away, but the whole body of flesh ripped away. This idea, think about this, this sinful human nature that totally dominated you before you had Christ ripped away. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That's what we're talking about here. The body of the flesh ripped away. Crucified with Christ. You've got you. Physical body is intact right now. And you've got that old self. This crucified with Christ. If you're here and you're a believer. And you've got the new man. Created in Christ Jesus. The physical circumcision was a sign of being a part of the people of God, Israel. But the spiritual circumcision is a sign this change of heart, the circumcision of heart is a sign that you truly are a part of the people of God, the true Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. The physical circumcision was a reminder to Israel that God had, had given them the promised land. But the spiritual circumcision is a reminder that one day we're going to dwell in that new Jerusalem and see our Savior face to face. It's coming. The physical circumcision was a reminder that the Messiah was coming through the people of Israel to bless all nations. The spiritual circumcision of the heart, when God has changed your heart, is a reminder to you, is evidence to you, that you belong to Christ. You belong to that Messiah. You are a part of those nations who would be redeemed. 
Physical circumcision is unnecessary for the Gentiles, but spiritual circumcision of the heart is a necessity for everybody. A work has to happen in the heart. So Grace Community Church, listen to me. Before we move on to this next point, I want to just stop and summarize this point. Listen. Something has happened to you, Grace Community Church. You're in Christ Jesus, united to Him. And something very deep has happened to you. This passage calls it spiritual circumcision of the heart. That has happened to you. And I want to encourage you over what Christ has done so that you'll never move away from Him with one other verse, Ezekiel 36. Listen. Just listen and let, it, let, this, let this reality of what Christ has done, let it sit on you. Ezekiel 36. Verse 25 says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols and I will cleanse you. There you were, unclean. He's made you clean. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone. Spiritual circumcision. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. That's a new heart that He will give to you. That He has given to you if you're in Christ. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. That heart that you have in you that wants to walk with God. You know it's not perfect. You know you have sin. But that heart that wants to walk with God. And wants to serve Him. That's God that has done a work in you. Church of Jesus Christ. You have the spiritual circumcision. He's done a work in your heart. Praise to the living God. Now these next two descriptions are really connected to the spiritual circumcision. In other words, they dig just a little bit deeper into what this means, okay? So number three, spiritual reality that you have in Christ. Number three, buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Look at verse 12, Colossians 2, 12. Buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Having been buried, so this having been is connected to that circumcision of Christ that you have. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now I think too often Christians hear this, this way of talking and they speak like this and it's just Christian lingo. It's just what we say, right? We're buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ. We've been buried with Him in His death and we've been raised to walk with Christ in newness of life. We just say things like that. But I want you to come to this realization. That is a reality for you. You were, think about it, buried with Christ in His death. Christian, you, are, you were raised to walk with Him. Raised in His resurrection. Let that settle on you for a minute. If you're a Christian here, you did not just hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You participated in it. You're united to Jesus in His death. Meaning, His death is your death. Can you see it? Can you see that old sinful man of yours? That old sinful self of yours? You deserve nothing but hell and God's wrath. Lifted away and crucified at the cross. Can you see the old man dead there, penetrated through at the cross of Jesus? You're united to Christ in His resurrection. His resurrection is your resurrection, which means you're a new creation in Christ. You're resurrected with Christ, clothed in His righteousness, able to stand before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. You can stand before Him that way because the old man is done away with new in Christ. It's who you are. I want to commend everybody here. If you're serious about Christian sanctification, I want to encourage everybody here to a deep study of Romans chapter 6, which digs deeper into this idea of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, we see the way that you fight sin, the way you press into sanctification is built upon and empowered by the foundation of what Jesus has already done. And these deceivers in Colossus, they want to come in and move them away from Christ and what He has accomplished. And, he, and, and in doing that, they, they remove from these people that, the thing that empowers them to sanctification. I want you to look at this in Romans 6. I just want to read a few, few verses there. Romans chapter 6. 
Let me just read 1 through 6 and then make a few comments. Look at this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We don't have to continue in sin. How can we who die to sin? That's what Christians are called. Those who die to sin. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Think about what's been done. You've been buried with Christ. In order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, this foundation of what Christ has done for us, it affects our walk. It affects our dealings with sin and walking with God. It really does. Don't let anybody move you away from it. Look at verse 5. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, and we have been, if you're in Christ, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Listen to this phrase. We know that our old self, our old self, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of the flesh put away in your spiritual circumcision as in Colossians 2.11. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Christian, buried with Christ, raised with Him, no longer enslaved to sin. That's what you have in Christ. That's glorious, Amen. Verse 11 tells you to do this. So, here's what you must do. Every Christian in the room. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider it. Count it. Put it in the bank account. It's done. Dead to sin. Alive in Christ Jesus. He's accomplished this for you. And the Colossian deceivers wanted to move them away from who Christ is and what He's accomplished. Completely ripping out from under them their power to fight sin and walk in holiness. But you're not a slave to sin if you're in Christ. We see in uh, also in Colossians, if you go back to Colossians 2, we see in Colossians 2.12 also how to come into possession. How do you come into possession of these spiritual glorious realities that we're talking about? We see that in Colossians 2.12, but we're going to come back to that. So let's skip that from now and we'll come back to that. Look, look with me to the fourth spiritual reality that you have in Christ. The fourth spiritual reality. Uh, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Fourth reality. You were dead and Christ has made you alive. You were dead and Christ has raised you from the dead. I want you to understand spiritual deadness. The Colossian believers, imagine them reading this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And they know that they've got, they feel things in their whole life. They've seen with their eyes and they've heard with their ears. And they know that they have a heartbeat. They know those things are intact. But did Paul just say we were dead? Yes, this is the walking dead. People are walking around this planet dead. In their sin. Dead to God. Spiritually dead. Until God makes you alive. You were like Lazarus. Dead and stinking in the tomb. Until Jesus said, come forth. And when He said come forth, your spiritual eyes were open to see Jesus. Your spiritual ears were open to hear His words. You felt a spiritual pulse in your chest. You begin to feel the conviction of sin. You, you begin to see the glories of Jesus and love Him. And what? Because He woke you up from the dead. You've been made alive in Christ. You were like the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son who... Walked away from the Father that loved him so that he could go live a life of sinful pleasure. Remember that? You were like that prodigal son, but God awakened you 
And you came to your senses to see the foolishness of your sin and the grace of the Father. God woke you up to that and you ran to the Father. And get this, in love, He ran to you. He ran to you. And at the end of that prodigal son passage, He looks at the brother in the story. And the Father says this, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. You're like the prodigal son, we all are. So this says God has made you alive together with Him. Means you're united to Christ so that the life of Christ flows through your spiritual veins. The life of Jesus flows through your spiritual veins. This is what the Bible often calls eternal life. Eternal life. When you hear eternal life, you shouldn't just be thinking about a length of life. How long is the life? It's eternal. But eternal life throughout the Bible speaks about a quality of life that abides in you right now. It's the life of God in the soul of men, as Henry Skugel called it. Henry Skugel, who wrote that book, The Life of God in the Soul of Men, he, he, was, he was expressing in that book his sadness. About the state of the Christians all around him. His sadness that so many people's religion was only in the intellect. Or so many people's religion was only in these external deeds that they did. So many people's religion was only in their emotions. All these ditches that people were falling in. That's all the religion was about. And then he goes on in a beautiful way to describe true religion to us. Listen to what he says. True religion is a union of the soul with God. A real participation in the divine nature. The very image of God drawn upon the soul. Or in the apostles phrase, it is Christ formed within us. Briefly, I know not how the nature of religion can be more fully expressed than by calling it a divine life. The life of God in the soul of men. And fellow Christian, that's yours. You have what he just described if you're in Christ. You own it. You, you possess it. Christ did not halfway do His work. There are not fully alive Christians and half dead Christians walking around the planet. Alive in Christ. He fully does His work. Is Jesus your Savior? Is He your Savior? Is He the one you look to when you think about eternity and that judgment and that wrath that is to come? Is Christ the one that your spiritual eyes gaze upon? And if so, cast away your doubt. You've been given life flowing through your spiritual veins. The life of God, the life of Christ in you. You've been made alive. Praise God for this. Buried with Him. Risen to walk. And I think the encouragement is don't move away. Why would you move away from the one that rose you from the dead? The fifth one, fifth spiritual reality given to you in Christ is forgiveness of all trespasses. Look at verse 13 again. The last part of verse 13. Oh, please don't let this land on you as common. This glorious little phrase that you've heard so many times. Do not let this land on you as common. Listen, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Don't let that be common to you. Why don't you think about what we've seen so far. In the spiritual blessings that you possess, if you're in Christ, in the ones that we've looked at so far, your sinful nature has been dealt with. Crucified with Christ, buried in a tomb. Your spiritual nature has been dealt with. But you say, but... But what about that spiritual record? I know my spiritual nature, the old man's been dealt with, but what about that record of my sins in heaven? What about that record, that, that, that sinful record that I have? My sinful nature's been dealt with, but what about that sinful record? You've been forgiven all trespasses. The record of death nailed to the tree. Your sinful nature crucified and your sinful record wiped clean. Notice right here it says... He having forgiven us, what? All trespasses. All of them. Past sins. Present sins. Future sins. Sins of commission. Sins of omission. Open sins. Secret sins. Root sins. Fruit sins. All of them mount up like a mighty mountain before you. And they testify against you in the last day. Wiped clean. Done. Forgiven. All of them. 
The illustration given here in verse 14. I want to read this again. This is important. Listen to the illustration of your sins being forgiven. Listen. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So think about it with me. There was a record of debts. A written record of what you owe God. There's a record, a handwritten record of what you owe God. In this record, it stood against you. In fact, it was hostile to you. It had legal demands that it bore down on you. This is the record of debts. And that record of debts, it's either the uh, God's standard that we have fallen infinitely short of, that only Christ has fulfilled. It's either that, the record of debts is either that standard that stands before us and condemns us, or it's that record of all of our sins. But we have broken that standard. Either way, it's a record that stands against you. It's a record that is hostile to you. A record that, that, that we got to have this record. we got to have it removed from us. Or we're going to hell. We're going to be condemned forever. And it says in verse 14, this beautiful word. Cancel. Cancel. By canceling. The record of death. Cancel. Can you see Christ grabbing the contract and ripping it to pieces? Cancel. Adopt for those sins. Risen from the grave. Rip up the record of deaths. Now, many of you know about this word. I didn't know much about it. I learned about it. It's about a year ago. The word expunged. You know the word expunged? The word expunged. It means to blot out. To blot out or erase. Expunged to a race. I know a lady who I spoke with recently who had a certain offense on her record. She imagined this offense on her record that she doesn't want to be there. And she, and she wants to, a few years later, after the offense got put on the record, a few years later, she wants to adopt a child. And she's fearful. I can't adopt this. I'm not, they're not going to let me adopt this child because I got this offense on my record. I've got this, this mark, this lash that's on my record. And so in worrying about that and fearful about that, she goes to the courthouse. And I want you to, I'm just going to read to you what she wrote to me in the text message. When I went to the courthouse and gave them my name, they searched for the records, but they couldn't find it. So they, so, so they searched my social security number and still couldn't find anything on me. I finally told them that it had been expunged. But that I wasn't sure what that meant. That's when the lady said, Oh, sweetie. Oh, sweetie. If it's been expunged and there's no longer any record of it, it doesn't exist. It was all that I could do to hold it together till I got it to my car. Can you imagine standing before the judge of all the earth and you hear those words? You know your sin. You know what you deserve. And you imagine hearing those words before your God. There's no record of it. It doesn't exist. Nowhere to be found. My sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. This He set aside, the record of death, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the, think about that last phrase. Nailing it to the cross. That means something was happening at the cross of Jesus Christ that's more than meets the eye. If you would have been there that day and you saw the bloody massacre of Christ, if you would have seen that that day, you still could have missed the most important realities of what was happening there. Because at the cross, at that cross... Our sins were being laid upon Him. At that cross, the wrath of God that's supposed to fall on me and you, He was absorbing it for us. At the cross, that record of death was being pinned to the tree. We were being saved at the cross. Sinful nature, internal problem, dealt with in Christ. Sinful record, Dealt with in Christ. And you are complete in Him. Colossian church. Don't move away from Him. Grace Community Church. Don't move away from Christ. All the deceivers are silly. 
Sixth spiritual reality. Last one. Our spiritual enemies are disarmed and shamed. Our spiritual enemies are disarmed and shamed. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. He, that's Jesus, He, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Man, if you don't love that verse, something's wrong with you. Triumphing over them in Him. He disarmed the rulers, excuse me, and the authorities. That's speaking about Satan and all his armies. Satan and all his unclean spirits, demonic forces that, that lead the world astray. You can see that in Ephesians and other places in Colossians. So all Satan and his armies disarmed. Verse 15. It says he, he was triumphing over them. Look at it. Triumphing over them. The picture there. And that word triumphing, it's like a, a Roman general who went out to war and defeated his enemies. And then he drags his defeated foe into the streets of Rome, parades them through. Triumphing over them is what Christ has done to all Satan and his armies. It says, he put them to a shame. He put them to shame. He put them to an open shame. I got to read you a verse. First Chronicles 11. Listen, one of David's mighty men, his name is Benaiah. thought of Christ when I read this verse. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. So here's Benaiah. Here's Benaiah. He did many things, and it says right here, and he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, Five cubits tall. That's seven foot five. He's looking down on Shaq. And Benaiah goes down to this Egyptian, this man of great stature. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, which meant his spear was thick. It was a big spear. But Benaiah went down to him with a staff. It's a little staff. And Benaiah snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Oh, I thought of my Savior. The one who did this. The one who disarmed his enemies and puts them to an open shame and triumphs over them in Christ. Disarmed. Luke, Luke chapter 11 gives us a verse we have to read in light of this truth. Luke chapter 11, listen. Verse 21. Oh, see the glory of this. The glory of your Savior. When a strong man, he's speaking about Satan there, when a strong man, Satan, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he, that's Christ, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. I love this picture of Christ. You and everybody in here, all of us, you were a child of the devil. You were enslaved to Satan. You were unable to resist his temptations. And Christ invaded his territory and ripped you from his kingdom, ripped, ripped you from his slavery. And he disarmed your enemy against you. Can Satan still lie to you and tempt you? Absolutely. Absolutely he can. But, but the scripture says resist the devil and he will flee from you. You're no longer enslaved to him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you're no longer enslaved to him. Hebrews 2.14 in the NAS it says this. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the saints. So Christ Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. A body, flesh and blood. That through death. So he took, he took on a body that he might die. That's why he did that, that he might die. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Rendered powerless. I want you to think about the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. Think about the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. Not only has He dealt with your sinful nature, that's your eternal problem, 
And not only has He dealt with your judicial problem and your sinful record, not only has He dealt with that, but it's also right here that He has dealt with your enemies, your external problem. He's dealt with it all. All of it. Your internal problem, your sinful nature, crucified with Christ. Your, your sinful record, forgiven, nailed to the tree. Your sinful spiritual enemy, disarmed, shamed, and triumphed over. Christ has done it all. What else is left and where else will you go? Where else shall we go, Lord? you got the words of eternal life. We don't have anywhere else to go, Lord Jesus. We see the work that you've accomplished. Paul says, Colossian church, don't you see it? Don't let these deceivers, let these, these deceivers lead you astray. If they, if they move you from Christ and move you from His finished work, they are fools. So I say the same thing in our church. Deceivers are going to come and go. But I pray that we're so obsessed with Christ and so obsessed with this completed full work that He's done that we don't budge. We don't move. <clears throat> Last question. How do we how do we come into possession? How do we come into possession of all these glorious realities that we just read about? How do we come into possession of it? Is it by earning it? Do we earn our way in? Give it our best? Be good? Go to church? Read your Bible? Is it by earning it? No, Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness, which you've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Isaiah 64, 6 says, your condition is so bad. Not only have you sinned against God, but all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Nothing that you do, that you earn, that you work at, can save you from hell. Now, now there's some people will make a, a very foolish move in attributing baptism to their salvation. And they might even try to use Colossians 2.12 to do that, right? Colossians 2.12, you've been buried with Him in baptism. I want you to think about that. You've been buried with Him in baptism. That means one or two things. It either means it's not even talking about a water baptism. It's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just like physical circumcision doesn't mean you have the spiritual circumcision. Even so, the physical baptism doesn't mean you have the spiritual baptism of the Spirit. Many people believe that baptism there is talking about that mainly because it says you've been buried with Him in baptism. Not through it, not by it, but in baptism. Whereas you've been raised with Him through faith. In baptism and through faith. But even if it does mean water baptism right here, it definitely means that as a representation of the conversion that you have experienced, you put your faith in Christ truly and you were buried with Him and raised to walk in newness of life and you were baptized as a representation of that. Baptism saves no one. I thought about if, if baptism did have saving effects then we ought to quit preaching the gospel and just start dunking folks, Right? And Paul said, I, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There's a reason he said that. So how do you come in possession? It's not by works. It's not by your baptism. How do you come into possession of these glorious realities? In verse 12, look at it. Verse 12. Through faith. Faith in the power, in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Think about that. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Faith is trust in Christ. It's reliance upon Christ. Faith is the outstretched hand reached out to partake of God's faithfulness. Faith. It's not just a worldly version of faith. It's not just mental assent to just a few facts about Jesus. But it's trust in the one who powerfully works. In the one who rose Christ from the dead. Is faith in Him. In that Savior who died for you. That Savior who laid down His life. Who is alive right now to save anyone here. No matter how bad off you've been. It's faith in Him. If you're here today and you don't. Have faith in Christ. Or you have yet to put your faith in Christ. Listen to me. This is serious. You still have these three problems. You still have a sinful nature. And you stand before God as, an, as, as His enemy and come under His wrath. And you say, well, I don't, 
I don't feel all that bad. It doesn't matter what you feel like. That's part of the blindness. You have another problem, which is your spiritual, your, your sinful record. Not just your nature, but your record before God. There's a record with your name on it. And you will stand before the judge of all the earth. Guilty. And your third problem is you have a spiritual enemy who blinds you. He blinds you from seeing your sin. You don't feel conviction of sin because you're blinded. He blinds you from seeing the glory of Christ. You understand things about Christ, but you don't see His glory and beauty because you're blinded. You still have these three major problems. And you must stand before God one day. So I want you to hear that as a warning. You must come to Christ. But if you do have faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be encouraged that all of these problems that the, that the unbeliever has, that the one who doesn't have Christ, all these problems that he has, it's you had them at one time, but they're dealt with. Every single one of them dealt with in Christ. Be encouraged by that. Be very encouraged by that. You possess every single spiritual blessing in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 9 through 15. You own it. You own it. Let me give you an application truth. An application command very quickly. And we'll pray. Here's, the, here's an application truth. I just want you to hear this truth. Grace Community Church. Just like I think Paul is saying to the Colossians. Grace Community Church. You do not have to fall into deceptions. Because Jesus has disarmed the deceiver. You do not have to fall into temptations because Jesus has done heart surgery on you. You're no longer a slave of sin and all you need for sanctification is in Christ. Do you hear these truths? Do you believe them? All that you have in Christ. And so here's the command. Be on guard. What's he saying in verse 8 and 16? Don't let them lead you astray. Don't let them deceive you with his philosophies and empty deceit and legalism and all this other junk. Don't let them lead you astray with this stuff, this worldliness, modernism, materialism. Don't let them lead you astray with this. Be on your guard for yourself. And look around at your brothers and sisters and be on guard for each other. And how do we help each other? And we remember personally who Jesus is. Colossians Chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. We remember who He is. We drive our minds into a deeper, intimate knowledge of who He is and what He's accomplished. And we remind each other of that as well, right? And in doing that, we said we fortify ourselves against all the works of the enemy. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Word, God. Thank You for Your Word to us. God, I pray... Pray, God, that you would help us to know you, Lord Jesus, more intimately. God, move us, move us past just facts and intellectual understanding, God, and external religion. Move us past all of that, God. And let us lay hold of that which we possess, which you have accomplished for us. Teach us to lay hold of it, God, and know you intimately and deeply and walk with you. God, if there is any here today that fall under that category I mentioned a moment ago and they don't know you and they're headed for an eternity in hell God I pray you turn them around God let them see in what we've looked at in your word let them see a savior who nails their sins to a cross help the unbelievers here to see it Lord and come to you please and God, for every believer in the room, in Christ Jesus, encourage their souls. Please encourage us, God. Encourage us. And keep us away from all the tactics of the enemy. We can't understand all his tactics, Lord. But we understand your glory, your, your grace, and your majesty. Keep us focused there. In Jesus' name. Amen.